Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. This week, we're going to be talking all about the Supreme Court. On Friday morning, the Supreme Court released their ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, where in a 6-3 majority opinion written by Samuel Alito, they overruled Roe v. Wade. Now, we talked about this decision uh, when it was uh, when the draft was leaked. Uh, the, uh, the Samuel Alito uh, draft was leaked uh, a few months ago, and we, we talked some about this, but I really want to talk about um, the argument uh, and, and what uh, the argument is, what it says, what this means for abortion in the United States, what this means for the pro-life movement, etc. I really want to talk and break down the decision, uh, all of the, uh, the, the, the dissents as, as well. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. If we have time, we'll go over some of the other Supreme Court cases uh, that were released this week because they were also just as uh, they were also a big deal. Uh, but obviously, they're not going to be as big of a deal as this abortion case was. So, to the ruling we go. Uh, Well, it was held, and I'll read from the opinion here. Held, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. So again, uh, to put that in layman terms, what that means is that uh, the Constitution is silent on the uh, right of an abortion. It doesn't say anything about an abortion. So what that means is the uh, states, the state legislature, are going to be able to decide for themselves whether they regulate abortion or not. But I want to turn to the actual argument that the majority opinion used, and I want to start by, you know, talking about, you know, where is, where was the uh, right to an abortion found in the Constitution? Okay, so Roe v. Wade, in Roe v. Wade, they, the court, the Supreme Court found that Roe, that there's a right to an abortion as part of a right to privacy that they got from the first, fourth, fifth, Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments. So they uh, looked at those four or those five amendments together, and they pulled from them this idea of a right to privacy. And out of that right of privacy, they then found that uh, the Constitution therefore also granted a constitutional right to abortion. Now that is a row. However, in 1992, the Supreme Court ruled in Casey v. Planned Parenthood, and Casey was the kind of before this case was the uh, precedent that the Supreme Court held. Uh, and in uh, Casey v. Planned Parenthood, they ruled that um, the uh, that the right to an abortion was is part of the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment's due process clause. So I want to turn to the 14th Amendment real quick. And the 14th Amendment reads, quote, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. So what that's saying there, right, that you, as a, an American citizen, no state shall take from you life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Well, though, uh, you know, that term liberty is a very broad term, and included in that uh, liberty, that right to liberty that the government cannot take away from you, the Supreme Court in Casey found that right of liberty included abortion. 
And so we have to look at the 14th Amendment and say, and, and the court does this, is, and say, does the uh, liberty protected by the for, uh, 4th Amendment's due protection, due process clause, does it grant the right to an abortion? And it would be easy and, and quick to just look at the rest of the Constitution and say, nope, there's no mention of uh, abortion, therefore it doesn't exist. However, I want to be careful about that argument because it's not a very good argument, to be honest. And here's why. Um, the Constitution, I want to read the Ninth Amendment. Okay, so the Ninth Amendment reads, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So to give you some context about what that means and why they wrote that ni the Ninth Amendment. So when the Constitution was uh, in the process of ratification, you had two groups, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. The Federalists were in favor of ratifying the Constitution. The Anti-Federalists were against it because they viewed it as giving the federal government too much power and that with that power, they would trample over the rights of the state. So the Anti-Federalists, in the uh, process of ratification, demanded that there be a set of rights that would be passed, and the Federalists agreed to pass a set of rights, or we know them as the Bill of Rights, that specified specific rights that the federal government could not infringe upon. Okay, So like I said, we know those as the first ten amendments, or the Bill of Rights, and as much as we love the Bill of Rights now, there's actually a lot of debate between Federalists about whether they should include a Bill of Rights or not. And, you know, I'm not talking about fringe arguments. I mean, very mainstream framers of the Constitution argued that we should not have a Bill of Rights. And the reason why they argued that is because they did not want future generations or the government in the future to look at the list and say, that's all the rights you have. Okay, so this goes back to a you know a political kind of theory of uh, whether we have positive or negative rights. So, what the, what the difference between those is: do we get our rights from the government? Does the government grant us rights? So, for example, free speech. Do we have free speech because the government gives us the right to free speech, or? Uh, negative rights are we we have free speech because it is an inherent right of being a human being that we have the inherent right to free speech and conservatives for the longest time have argued that we have negative rights that we have rights inherently the government doesn't grant us rights and the reason why that's important thing is Okay, so think about free speech. If the government has granted us the right to free speech, then if they take that right away, what is our argument, right? You know, the government grants, and if the government can grant us rights, they can also take away rights. So those rights have to be located somewhere that's not the government. It's located in the fact that we are, you know, have a creator, we're created by God, and that with that, God has given us certain rights, and that those rights are not granted to us by the government, but are but are protected protected by the government. Okay, so it's an important distinction. So when we talk about rights that we have, the, the Ninth Amendment and the uh, kind of the, the framers wanted to, of the, the writers of the Ninth Amendment, wanted to make clear that there are rights that you have that are not inherently listed here, that you have rights. And so going back to the question of abortion, is abortion a right and one of those unenumerated rights talked about in the Ninth Amendment? Is it a right? Is it a right that we have, but isn't necessarily listed in the Constitution? Well, that brings up the question of how do we know 
what those rights are, right? If they're not specifically listed in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, then how in the world are we supposed to know what rights we do or don't have? And that is what is kind of the main chunk of this decision. And it argues that um, it uses the nation's history and tradition. So, uh, you know, is a right... Um, is it, can we find it in the history or tradition of this country? If we can, you know, if we can go back and we can see that there is a tradition and a history of a particular right in this country, then we can consider that an unenumerated right, a right that we have but is not necessarily specifically mentioned in the Constitution. And so what the, argue, the majority opinion argues, I think very effectively, is that the right to obtain an abortion is not rooted or located in the nation's history and tradition. So you'll if you read the opinion, they go they talk a lot about uh, different laws throughout the United States. And one of the kind of their I think one of the best arguments they made is that when the 14th amendment was ratified and passed, uh, 30 states had laws against abortions. So what that means is that if 30 of the states did not only did they not you know, recognize a right to an abortion, but they actively have laws against an abortion, then there's no way that the authors of the 14th Amendment could have included or could have meant by liberty a right to an abortion. So um, that is uh, kind of the main chunk of the majority opinion. They go through case by case and uh, you know, talk about the time periods before the ratification of the 14th Amendment, the, f the founding, they even go further back in the English common law, and what Alito does is he lays out and he says, nowhere in our nation's history or tradition do we see a right to an abortion. It was created in 1973 with Roe v. Wade. And so that is kind of the main chunk of that majority opinion. So that's kind of the major chunk of the majority opinion, but then the majority opinion focuses on what is called stare decisis, the doctrine of stare decisis. So this stare decisis uh, is this idea that the uh, court needs to recognize and continue to uh, recognize the rulings of the past. So uh, what they the purpose of, of this is that you don't want the, the Supreme Court every year or so changing their mind. Okay, so... Stare decisis is essentially uh, that what's what's left in the past needs it's settled law. It needs to remain settled. Okay, so um, Roe v. Wade and and Casey v. Planned Parenthood are in a, in a sense were settled law. And so, according to the doctrine of stare decisis, theoretically it should be left alone, and the Supreme Court should continue to rule that there's a right to an abortion and cite stare decisis. However, as the majority opinion argues again, I think very effectively, is that just because there's this uh, important role of stare decisis, that does not necessarily mean that it is, uh, it, it is a have to, it is a must. And in fact, throughout the history of the court, they have overruled their precedent and uh, gone against stare decisis. Um, and so the arguments in the favor uh, of uh, overruling uh, the Roe v. Wade, uh, regardless of stare decisis, is that um, the, the 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 opinion runs through some factors that should be considered when a precedent should be overruled. So the five factors that it cites are the nature of the court's error, the quality of the reasoning, the workability uh, of the ruling, the effect on other areas of law. 
and the reliance interest. Okay, so uh, by looking at those five different factors, the court can determine um, whether a ruling should be or a precedent should be overruled. And so the uh, majority opinion then goes through in kind of meticulous fas- fashion the uh, those five factors, the nature of the court's rulings. And so what we see there is, um, you know, how serious is the court's error? So in, in this is the section that uh, Alito cites kind of the infamous uh, Plessy v. Ferguson. That is the uh, case that kind of enshrined into law the idea of separate but equal, uh, of segregation. Um, and it, it said that segregation was constitutional. Um, and uh, he says that, as is the, as was the case with Plessy v. Ferguson, that that ruling was so egregious that it needed to be overruled in spite of stare decisis. And he argues that uh, Roe v. Wade uh, needs to be overturned because it was so egregiously uh, wrongly decided that it needs to be uh, needs to be overturned. He also argues the quality of the re- of the reasoning. This is similar in that. Um, the, he he again meticulously accounts for why the reasoning, the legal reasoning used in Roe, was such a terrible um, uh, was such a terrible line of reasoning. He then will basically say, and in this section he'll talk about Casey because again Casey is kind of the dominating uh, precedent that the court has been under for the last thirty years, and he says Casey didn't do anything, didn't say anything about Roe's reasoning. It's not like Casey came along right later and provided or um, gave uh, another boost to the reasoning of Roe. In fact, Casey basically got rid of um, the reasoning of Roe and essentially just maintained the uh, right to an abortion. And so he says that if the reasoning of Roe is bad, Casey doesn't talk about the reasoning of Roe, so therefore Casey is also bad. And then he goes on to talk about the workability, and this is basically deciding uh, whether the rule that a precedent imposes is workable. That is, whether, according to the uh, syllabus here, whether, quote, it can be understood and applied in a consistent and predictable manner. So how workable is the a precedent. How uh, is it clear? Is it can uh, future judges and future generations rule, rule according to the precedent and the principle? And uh, again, Alito argues uh, no, uh, they they cannot because in Casey it, it establishes undue burden, uh, and so uh, it, this undue burden test. So it, did a regulation or a law does it pose an undue burden on abortion? And uh, Alito uh, again argues that, um, no, this is not clear, this is not workable, okay? This is a, basically a subjective standard of what is uh, an undue burden and what isn't. And so, not only, uh, so, not only is it, uh, based on, uh, this, uh, Roe v. Wade and the right to an abortion based on, uh, an egregiously wrongly decided case, one with terrible legal reasoning, it's also not workable. And then, how else does this affect other areas of law? This is the fourth factor that he considers. And he basically, again, argues that it not only affects abortion law, but it has a kind of an un- it has a distortion of uh, other legal doctrines as well. And then finally, reliance interest. Uh, this is kind of the idea that uh, how many people depend on this ruling? So, for example, a good example is uh, gay marriage, okay? If you, it is, there are a ton of reliant interest on that uh, ruling. So, if we were to use this context, uh, assuming that that is a, was a bad ruling, if 
no matter if it's a bad ruling or not, so many people are now reliant on that precedent that we cannot overturn it. Okay, so many marriages would be basically null and void. We'd have to figure out, well, what happens if they got married in this? Like, it's so convoluted and complicated, and so many people rely on that precedent now that it's not worth overturning. And uh, again, Alito argues that no, that's not how, uh, that is not the case here. So that's kind of a broad, uh, you know, summation of the um, majority ruling, again, that was written by Alito, uh, Kavanaugh, Barrett, uh, Roberts, Thomas, and Gorsuch all signed on to that opinion. So it was the um, conservative justices that signed on to that opinion. Um, that opinion is also like uh, 91 or 89 pages, something like that, uh, not including the appendix. So if you want to go read it, uh, you'll notice that I skipped a lot or I summarized a lot kind of, you know, roughly um, because it's impossible for me to uh, quickly uh, sum summarize uh, 89 pages worth of argument. But it's definitely worth the read if you want to go read it. With that, though, I want to talk about some of the concurrences. So concurrence is essentially um, a justice can write a concurrence. It's like it's essentially saying that I will I agree to the ruling, um, but sometimes they want to you know elaborate more. They want to clarify more. Sometimes they agree with the ruling, but they disagree with the reasoning that the court gives. And so they want to give their own reasoning. Um, and uh, the concurrence that I want to start with is Clarence Thomas's concurrence. So uh, this is the one that you'll probably see circulated a lot by people who are uh, you know terrified for the future. Um, because in it, he kind of takes this uh, ruling a step further. He says he wants to, um, quote, emphasize a second, more fundamental reason why there is no abortion guarantee lurking in the due process clause. And so he then will go on to essentially say that they need to reconsider all of, the court needs to reconsider all of their substantive due process precedent. Um, he So substantive due process, uh, he argues, is an oxymoron. Uh, so there's a two, uh, so due process is, uh, you know, if we think about the 14th Amendment, says no one can be Life, liberty, and property cannot be taken uh, apart from due process, without due process of law. Well, what does due process mean? And uh, Clarence Thomas argues, and a lot of people have made this argument. He's not the only one, but um, he's kind of the first Supreme Court justice in a while. Uh, make the argument that uh, it is it promises a process. It promises certain process, procedural things have to be uh, abided by. And as long as the process is abided by, so that would include things like, is the law passed in the correct way? Is it, is it executed in the correct way? Is, the, is it reviewed in the correct way, etc.? Um, then life, liberty, and property can be taken. Um, however, as long as, okay, as long as those rights are not specifically mentioned in the Constitution or rooted in the nation's uh, history or tradition. Um, However, uh, substantive due process is that there's some substantive, it's, it's worried about the substance of certain laws, and it's basically arguing that does the government have a rational basis for making this law? They can't just make any law that they want, but they actually have to have a rational basis for making a law. Um, and um, so it's, it's concerned about the substance of a law, and he argues that uh, this is nonsense. Substantive, substantive due process is nonsense. You are promised a process. You are not promised substantive due process. Uh, the reason why this is going to make the rounds, why this is uh, was a uh, you know important uh, concurrence to talk about, is because he then um, uh, writes and talks about. Uh, certain cases that are going to capture some attention. So he writes, quote, The court today declines to, dis to disturb substantive due process jurisprudence generally or the doctrine's application in other specific contexts. 
Cases like Griswold v. Connecticut, right of married persons to obtain uh, contraceptives, Lawrence v. Texas, right to engage in private consensual sexual acts, and Obergefell v. Hodges, right to same-sex marriage, are not at issue. Okay, so he uh, calls into question these three cases, whether you have the right to obtain a contraceptive, whether you have the right to engage in private consensual sexual acts. So Lawrence v. Texas was talking about homosexual, homosexual sexual acts, and then Obergefell, whether you have the right to same-sex marriage. And so he's essentially saying that he uh, believes that there should be doubt on whether these precedents should hold. Now, I want to point something out here. Okay, he is not arguing that he would be in favor of these things being made illegal. Okay, so you know he doesn't say I disagree with contraceptives, therefore uh, they should be uh, illegal. No, what he's saying though is that it's not the Constitution, similar to abortion, is silent on these issues. It doesn't say anything about these issues. Therefore, it is left to the people and the legislative branch to figure it out. Okay? Uh, that the justice does it's not the role of the justice to decide whether those laws are valid or not, because the Constitution is silent on the matter. Uh, now, in the majority opinion that Alito wrote, he kind of addresses this because uh, a lot of people would read that and say, hang on, hang on. So you're telling me that now the government can uh, get rid of um, the right to marriage or get rid of a homosexual marriage or uh, the right to contraceptives. The government can ban those things. And the majority opinion makes clear that this opinion, their opinion, does not do anything about any other rights. This is strictly about abortion, and in fact, Alito's argument is that abortion is distinct because abortion uh, impacts another life or another potential life, uh, and that those laws are, are, are settled and, and they aren't going to be uh, addressed because uh, those do not impact another life. That the abortion is unique, therefore they are overturning abortion, but they, that does not apply to any of these laws. Um, so uh, Clarence Thomas would obviously disagree, and he makes that clear in his concurrence. Uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh would also write a concurrence, and if you do not want to read the you know 80-plus pages of the majority opinion, then I highly recommend reading the Kavanaugh concurrence. It's about, I think it's 11 or 15 pages, something like that. Um, and uh, this, I think, is clearly a, a clear uh, description and clear um, uh, la uh, laying out of the argument for the Constitution essentially being silent on the matter of um, uh, of uh, abortion, and therefore it should go to the states. And then he also goes through, like I mentioned, that stare decisis and his analysis of stare decisis about why he thinks uh, stare decisis, uh, while an important principle, does not apply in this case. And then with the last uh, concurrence, you had Justice uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, and in uh, his concurrence, he basically lays out that uh, he would. Uh, he agrees with the the court in that he thinks this Mississippi law should be upheld, um, but he would not go as far as overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, the reason and and or Roe v. Wade or Casey. He essentially says that um, that it is okay to have a regulation on abortion pre viability, um, but that he would not go as far to say there's there's no constitutional right to abortion. Um, and I actually think Alito, well, he, he addresses this in his majority opinion. I think he just absolutely, uh, you know, kind of shows how foolish this uh, uh, concurrence is and how uh, Roberts's, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, reasoning is is poor. Why uh, you know we don't do it now? We're gonna have to do it later, etc. So, um, uh, so really, it's a five-four decision to overturn Roe v. Wade slash Casey, uh, with the Chief Justice signing on with the holding, and that the Mississippi law is upheld, but would not sign on to overturning Roe v. Wade. Which brings me to the dissent, uh, written by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. And in the dissent, you basically have uh, an argument that Roe v. Wade should be maintained because of stare decisis, uh, because uh, it is such an important precedent, and uh, it, it, because it's such an important precedent, it needs to be upheld. They, uh, you know, really don't make a very you know big argument in terms of the reasoning of Roe v. Wade and defending the reasoning of Roe v. Wade, but rather just saying that because of stare decisis, the court should not overturn Roe. You wait, and so they have to dissent. So that's the argument of uh, the different arguments of the Dobbs case. And now I want to talk to just what this means. And obviously, this is just monumental. This is monumental in terms of the uh, pro-life movement. The pro-life movement has been fighting against Roe v. Wade for literally 50 years, okay? So from 1973 to now, so I guess 49 years, they've been fighting against every year. In, in, in January, March for Life has met in Washington to fight for uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. You have uh, pro-life lawyers that have been in, in the conservative legal movement for decades fighting uh, f against Roe v. Wade. You, you saw um, just uh, loss after loss and disappointment after disappointment, particularly with KCV Planned Parenthood in 1992. Uh, and yet, in spite of that, uh, the pro-life movement continued to fight uh, against Roe v. Wade. And that is finally uh, going to be overturned. So it's just a, it's a monumental day, like I said. Um, it, I mean, praise God for this. Uh, I, you know, it, it's important to kind of keep this into perspective that, you know, the reason why... Um, uh, pro-lifers wanted this overturned. It was not to just win a political battle. That's not what we're interested in. Uh, we weren't interested in just owning the libs here. We we're actually interested in saving lives. And uh, while the vast majority of abortions will still be legal in the United States, because again, this just puts it back to the states. So California, Illinois, New York, they will still have, uh, you know, very uh, pro-choice, very uh, free abortion access. Uh, whereas, you know, more conservative states like Georgia will have str uh, stronger regulation on abortion. So um, this, the vast majority of abortions are already done in kind of this very pro-abortion state. And, and so something, I think one study said that 85 to 90% of abortions will still take place in the United States. Now, that is disheartening in, to some extent, but at the same time, uh, all abortions that we can get rid of are, are a good thing. And so the pro-life movement, now we can turn our attention away from fighting the Supreme Court and at the Supreme Court, and now we can turn our attention to the legislator, le legislators in the uh, various states. So because the states are now going to determine uh, uh, abortion policy, if you live in uh, California, Illinois, New York, then uh, this is where you turn your attention to, is lobbying uh, your legislators, your representatives, your state senators, uh, to uh, make abortion illegal in your state. And um, also, if you're a pro-lifer, um, and your state has, like, I live in Georgia, and there's the heartbeat bill. Um, that still does not make abortions illegal before a heartbeat is um, is detected. Even the Mississippi law that the Supreme Court upheld in this case was a 15-week ban. Uh, that means that before 15 weeks, you can still get an abortion in Mississippi. Um, so there's a lot more work to be done uh, in the pro-life movement. Uh, it is The fight is not over by any means. 
Uh, and uh, we have to continue not only to fight in the states, but we also need to fight um, in the legal field still. Um, just because uh, this ruling has, uh, you know, been upheld this time around does does not mean it will be in the future. And so that fight needs to continue. But nonetheless, this is something worth celebrating because uh, so many pro-lifers have dedicated their life to this cause um, for the sake of uh, unborn children, for the sake of protecting unborn children, because that ultimately is what this is all about. Which brings me to the breakdown of the breakdown, where I talk about my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, that you can read and subscribe to on Substack.com. And this week, I talked about uh, how to fight. Um, I talked about uh, the conservative legal movement and the pro-life movement as being examples for conservatives of what it looks like to fight. And um, what I mean by that is the conservative legal movement, so many people don't even realize how much work has gone into the uh, legal movement uh, of conservatives of the last 50 years. So during the Warren Court, you had uh, justices ruling uh, basically, uh, however they felt like they should rule. If they felt like the uh, if they felt like they, the country should have a right to an abortion, then they found a way in the Constitution to argue that it said that they should have a right. There's this idea of living constitutionalism that the Constitution changes with the times. And this argument and this uh, philosophy was r dominant in uh, the 1960s and 70s. And what happened is conservatives, realizing how dominant this was and wanting to change it, came up with their own conservative legal theory using co coherent and good arguments for why their uh, legal theory was right. Then they created organizations like the Federalist Society, and they won the argument. They won the argument, and we see that with not just this abor abortion case, but we see it with the guns case that was decided, as well as the religious liberty case that was decided this week as well. Uh, they, they won the case, and it took years. It took decades. It took generations. There were people like Robert Bork, like Antonin Scalia, that were born and, you know, bef and th th that started this and that helped build the conservative legal movement in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and we get to today, and they don't get to see the fruits of their labor, and yet uh, they were vital in that process. In the same way, the pro-life movement, right? There were decades and generations of people who were committed to the cause of pro-life. Uh, they, they started marching in, in Washington in January, and they have marched every year since. And uh, they may have started the March for Life in January of 1974, and they, they have now died, and they don't get to see the fruits of their labor, and yet uh, the, the, the fruits of their labor are evident. And I said that conservatives should take this example and uh, to fight for the causes that they care for, such as, and I mentioned in the piece, such as school choices, such as reforming Congress and bringing it back to its proper constitutional role that what we need to do is stop focusing on owning the libs, stop focusing on trolling, and focus on the hard work that the conservative legal movement, the pro-life movement did, organizing, thinking, debating, uh, being smarter than our opponents, not because we are smarter, but because we have better arguments, because we're better researched, because we're more thoughtful, etc. Like, this is what we should be doing, um, and if we do this, as we see with the pro-life movement and the conservative legal movement, we will have success. With that, that is the podcast this week. Um, thank you again for listening. I hope that you like, subscribe, share, do whatever you can to make this podcast go far and wide, and that I hope you will join again next week.